You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Uh, I've been uh, talking recently uh, about the lessons we could teach our kids and really by just having different discussions and maybe better discussions about life. We always talk on the show about resiliency and and creating a a more resilient family. Part of resiliency is helping our kids understand that life is hard and you can get through it. And and really, when it comes down to it, too, that you're already uh, able to handle a lot more than you think you are. And I think one of the things that really could help us convey this message to our children and our family are the stories we tell. So some of the stories I think we should make sure we're telling are the who am I story, which is where you share with your kids very clearly how you came to know who you are in this world. If you're a spiritual person, that could be your story about your conversion, uh, about why you believe in a higher purpose and how that higher purpose helps you understand how you're supposed to respond today in your daily life. The lesson could also uh, get into the Who Am I story could be about what, what you were called to accomplish on this earth, how you came to understand your specific role um, and it might even be as a father, as a mother, as a friend, as a doctor, whatever your profession is, how you came to understand that role. Um, but the kids need to know that you didn't start this world just knowing you were going to do something. You had to figure it out. And it starts to set up this idea that there is power in looking for your calling in life. Also, you could have a great discussion about that. Talk to them about their passions. Talk to them about what they feel in their heart uh, deeply that is uniquely theirs to bring to the world, um, and then share how you specifically discerned what you were supposed to do. Another conversation you can have is that life, uh, the life lessons you learn from loss, right? We've all lost somebody dear to us, or we've lost a car that we loved so much and we had put so much time and energy into, or we lost um, you know, a position or a toy or a something. We've all had loss in our lives. And the conversation that we can have with our kids about loss is so in, is so valuable because it's not going away. We are all going to have loss in life. So let's normalize loss by simply saying, you know what, this is how I dealt with my loss. And you might be able to tell a story where a business partner hurt you or, uh, you know, a spouse did something um, and you ended up ending the marriage or but talk about how loss hurt and um, how you made it through the hurt. Another story that you can tell is how to handle life stresses. You might talk to your kids in this one where you talk about how you've learned to handle your emotions, where a lot of times you want to blow up and freak out and get mad and punch somebody, but how you chose not to, or where you feel anxiety and stress and how you've learned to manage your anxiety and stress. Again, this teaches that we we can learn that stress is normal, wanting to punch somebody and get angry is normal, but you can then start to teach your kids specific situations where you learn to manage the anxiety and manage the stress. You can have a discussion about where they struggle with it and help them figure out how to turn off the fight or flight, right? How they can manage the emotion. Another great, I think, lesson and story we could talk to our kids about is the I can do hard things story. That's the story where you in your head honestly doubted maybe at first that you could accomplish something. 
You just couldn't see how it could be done. And it was overwhelming where you felt like there is no way I can do this. And then tell the story about how you overcame the hard thing and how you piece by piece slowly went through the journey of doing the hard thing. Talk about how it feels to overcome such hard things. Again, notice how this conversation, all of these conversations, are setting up the idea that life has some hard edges, but each and every one of them we can get through. We can get through loss. We can get through doing the hard thing. We can uh, learn what our values and our principles are. We can, we can handle and figure out who we are even in a world that seems so dark. When you guide your kid, your child, through these discussions, um, don't just do it when the moment appears. Uh, sometimes it might be great to start teaching some of these lessons along the way, uh, not just when all of a sudden they need those lessons. Does that make sense? They might. It might be better that you've already told similar stories three or four times. Then when they run into the problem, they'll actually remember the stories you've been telling. But this is what makes resilient kids are resilient conversations about where mom and dad had to be resilient, right? We, we always talk about we want our kids to be more resilient, but the reality is resilient kids are, are groomed and taught by resilient parents and resilient families. So let's make our family conversations part of this process and uh, know that the stories and the sharing of the stories are really what create the more positive, resilient symbols. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. I had a chance to go to uh, my wife's book group. And in her, I mean, it's not something I, I do often, but uh, I happened to be with her and she invited me and I went and heard a friend of mine, uh, a friend I grew up with, uh, name is Dr. David Colliker. He uh, is a um, was a endodontist and um, practices an endodontist. And he's he wrote a book titled Everybody Needs a Brain Tumor. And he's my age, uh, 49 years old, and has a brain tumor and has had it for about, I think, uh, seven plus nine years, I think. And, uh, you know, he talked about he talks about in the book the impact of a brain tumor. But really, everybody needs it because in the end, it takes you back to what really is most important. And some of the, the interesting things we're going to have him on the show sometime in the future, but um, it really is interesting, the discussion we had about when one of us is sick uh, and others start noticing it, kind of a lot of the lessons that have that, that come about because of that. He talked about how they, um, as a family, they, they didn't want everybody involved. It wasn't a, a everybody decision. It was their family's processing uh, this this situation. And he, 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 you know, was very private about it. He was a practicing endodontist. You don't want your endodontist to have a brain tumor. And so if everybody knew about the brain tumor, um, even though it wasn't impairing him physically uh, at that time, he didn't want everyone to know about it. And does do we have the right to that privacy? Think about all these stars that and famous people that the minute they start acting a little strange, people start throwing out their their health issues. Think about what we've what's happened with President um, uh, Trump and his health, and everybody questioning his mental health, or Hillary Clinton and her physical health. Now I get it if they're going to be the president, but what about just your dentist? There were stories told about the fact that. You know, people would try to figure stuff out by asking the kids of this person. 
So how's, what's going on with your dad? I, I, I noticed that this is going on. What's going on? So they're like shaking down the kids to get the information. Or they they also talked about just the impact it had on the family and how and how you have to go through the process of deciding what to tell what kids at what age and how the kids can process certain things. Um, it was just an amazing experience to watch somebody that was is basically me um, going through such a very difficult process and then to watch how his wife, uh, who was we've grown up with, we all went to high school together, we were all really good friends, to watch how she's taken care of him and uh, and how you just deal with it, um, how at first you think you don't know how you can overcome it, but you're overcoming it and you're handling it and everyone can in the end handle it. He also brought up uh, some pretty interesting points about the power of friends um, how a lot of friends would come over and, you know, the friends would come over and say, hey, can, what can I do to help? I know I want to help. I need to do so. I want to do something to help. And, you know, she would always just say, oh, no, we're good. We're good. We're good. And then the other friends that just say, no, we're bringing you dinner every Wednesday. It's just going to happen. So just deal with it. Now, you don't have to eat it, but we're going to bring it to you. And they just brought it. And she said, amazingly, it was the greatest blessing of all time because – for some reason, every Wednesday is when her life would fall apart. But she always knew her friends would be bringing her dinner. And so maybe a lot of us need to learn simply the idea that we don't always have to ask if we can help. Maybe sometimes you just need to intuit or sense if they need the help. And then if they do, just organize it. You can always freeze, you know, some food that that somebody brings over. You can take a casserole and put the casserole in the freezer if you've got too much food. But other than that, just serve and give and care. And it, they've talked about the fact about how how everything is more important now, how everybody in the family is now more willing to pick up and, and help around the house. Um, when uh, the mom, Susan Colicker, would ask you know one of the kids to take the garbage out or who wants to take the garbage out? If none of the kids respond, then Dave, who has the brain tumor and is uh, now in a wheelchair, would say, oh, I'll take it out. And everybody, all the kids immediately would jump up and run to go take the garbage out. So even though it is a horrendous thing to go through, um, they talked about the fact that there's benefits. It's changing their family. It's changing the fact that they know they know more clearly what matters most. They know the importance of family and how it comes first. They say, I love you more. They're more connected. They're more real. And the the benefit is something that was supposed to create a life expectancy of five years has given David nine. And so they feel grateful and they feel like they're living on borrowed time, but they're grateful for it. And um, I, I guess everybody in the end of the book group, a lot of people are like, well, yeah, maybe not everybody needs a brain tumor. But if we could learn the lessons of it um, and, and take in the, the lessons and why I bring it up is um, – it's uh, it's brain. I can I think it's like Brain Health Awareness Month. And the funny thing about our lives, the funny thing about our health is, very rarely do we ever get our brains scanned. Um, but today, you know, there's a lot that can go wrong in your brain, and we don't pay attention to it. We know that everyone wears pink for breast cancer awareness. Uh, this is the month where you wear gray for gray matter awareness, because gray matter is the healthy 
uh, is the healthy brain tissue. And so just be thinking about it and just be grateful and know that uh, you may not need a brain tumor, but you can live the lessons that we all learn. Again, the name of the book is Everybody Needs a Brain Tumor. Um, David Colliker is the author. He wrote it with his son, John. It's just a quick read. It's something you could read in a night, but it is something, too, that uh, you might want to read with your kids and talk about the importance of family and all the other principles that come with it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. In our lives, there's there's a lot of things, big and little, right, that that occupy our mind and our energies. Uh, I've, I've kind of – I'm a big believer that our thinking – deeply impacts what we feel, right? So if we tend to think negative thoughts, you might feel more negative things. If you tend to, um, you know, think that there's a lot of hope and opportunity in the world, you tend to feel that. If you feel that, you tend to go looking for it. You do different things. So thinking leads to feelings. Feelings lead to actions. Actions lead to what we're becoming. It's a fairly basic, what I call a change model. And um, I found that there's certain little lies, maybe myths, Things that we believe that actually may be stunting some of our true growth. It may be stunting us, keeping us from being the person we want to be. And I wanted to review some of those um, those lies, those myths that uh, that we think – that really, I think sometimes in a way they depress us. They make us a little bit more um, exhausted with our lives. One, for example, one of these hidden lies is the idea that, you know, if you have a natural gift – that's actually better than um, than any other gift you may have acquired over time, right? So, for example, um, if you're naturally musical and it comes really easy to you, and you can just get it, and it get you get it really well, I know a lot of people that revere that is actually a better thing, as as more valuable than the person maybe that isn't naturally as gifted in music but works really hard to get good at it. You know, we have a lot of people that, that sit there and, you know, the, the person that has the naturally perfect, you know, shaped body or the naturally healthy um, physique or the one that just naturally – I mean, I've had my sisters frustrated because – some of their friends just had natural curl in their hair. But my sisters have to work at it every day to get their hair curly. Or the guy that's just naturally charismatic. Or, um, you know, the one that just naturally is smart. Is that a better gift than the one that works at it? The reality is, is some of us, you know, there's this different mindset we can pick up. And we've talked about it on the show with Carol Dweck, whether you have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And people that think that things are fixed, they are just what they are. They like the idea that some people are just naturally gifted. But there's another mindset that says, no, 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 we can grow. We can become better. We can adapt and we can get good at stuff that maybe we weren't naturally good at. And that growth mindset is a really important mindset because if you think that only natural gifts are worth anything, then you might be setting yourself up to actually never have to do anything because the reality is a lot of our biggest you know, advancements in life didn't come just naturally. They came by people working and adapting and changing. So let's blow up that myth that if somebody's just naturally good at something, they're obviously better than those that work hard. If you've never, if you've ever met somebody that was naturally gifted that never worked on their gift, you know very quickly that having a gift that you don't work on doesn't make you that great. 
it actually may make make you lose the gift, right? So it might be more important to realize that the best gifts are the ones that we actually appreciate a lot and the most and that we work on day in and day out. Another thing that another lie that I think we tell ourselves is that, oh, I could never handle X. If this happened to me, I could never handle that. I I mean, I could never handle losing a child. I could never handle uh, my parents dying. I could never handle such a thing. Be careful ever telling yourself that lie because the reality is you could. You know, humans are notoriously bad at predicting what we're good at and what we're not good at. I mean, most people think they're really good drivers, and the reality is, eh, you're not so good. You really aren't a great driver. So be careful thinking that you could never do something simply because, you know, A, you may have to, you may have to face that terror someday, and the reality is uh, you, you'll handle it. You wouldn't want to handle it. It maybe is a better thing to say. I could never handle X. Instead of saying that, maybe say, I would never want to handle X. But if it happened to you, the reality is you'd, you'd handle it and you'd probably kill it. You'd do a great job. Again, yesterday, if you remember, I was talking about my friend, uh, David Colliker, who has a brain tumor and he wrote a book, Everyone Should Have a Brain Tumor. Um, and the reality is he would he would have probably thought I could never handle a brain tumor. I, I could never go through that. But when you're forced to go through something, you know what's amazing? You go through it and you'll handle it and you won't even just handle it. You'll do an awesome job at it. And then interestingly, it becomes not so much of just a horrible trial that destroyed you. It becomes the thing that refined you. It becomes the thing that actually makes you who you really are. So uh, two myths that we got to watch out for, two lies that we tend to tell ourselves. The natural gifts are the only good gifts, right? And that I could never handle X. And in reality, all gifts that you work hard at are worth having, and uh, you can handle a lot more than you ever thought you could. Anyway, just a little advice from your coach, your guide on the side. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Henry David Thoreau, in his book Walden, wrote, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. Thoreau listed the necessities of life as food, shelter, clothing, and fuel But if he had written Walden today, do you think he would have listed a smartphone as well? Our next guest is uh, the Pose Endowed Professor of Telecommunications at the University of Michigan, Scott Campbell. He's here to talk to us a little bit about solitude and how solitude affects us and how we are missing out on solitude in today's world. Dr. Scott Campbell, thanks for being with us. Hi, Matt. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great, uh, great topic. This whole idea of solitude for for many it's we wouldn't even recognize it if we saw solitude define for us solitude actually this is one of the most interesting problems about solitude today is um in addition to technology which we'll talk about um you know i'm a scholar so um research and theory and measurement of solitude is a huge problem because all of the concepts of solitude uh you know you're talking about thoreau um right 
and since then um, into the 20th century have pretty much been defined and the tools that we use to measure solitude have been developed uh, before the digital age. And so if you want me to define solitude, technically mm. most scholars so far still uh, regarded as being alone, physically not being around other people or not engaging with people you are around. Wow. Sometimes, yeah. And, and I disagree with that definition of solitude. I think we need to bring it up to... Uh, bring it up to speed in the digital age. It's so true, huh? Because, you know, Thoreau went away to the woods in a, yeah. In a yeah. cabin. And what's, and, and, what's, and what's interesting is about Thoreau is, we, you know, we think of this as some sort of um, miraculous, heroic effort that he did, you know, going off for a couple of years. Right. Really, though, it was, I guess, a, a pretty short walk from, um, from where he, he had a lot of friends, and, and he did have company come into his cabin he didn't truly live entirely alone for two years. He had yeah. social interaction. And we can do this today. We don't need to carve out two years of our life and go move somewhere. You know, We can find solitude here and there, but we can't do it if we're not thinking about it and we're not, if we're not conscious of it. It's interesting. You're a professor of telecommunications, associate professor of communication studies at the University of Michigan. What got you into solitude? What brought you to that topic? Well... <laughs> Usually, <clears throat> the things that we study and write about um, ideally come out of some sort of theoretical problem that we're trying to solve, and, and this is a theoretical problem, but the truth is, to answer your question, is last summer I reread Aldous, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, hmm. and this is one of my favorite books. I'm a technology guy, and I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily pro-technology or anti-technology. I'm just interested in technology and social change. I love that book, and... Um, you know, you can read it a lot of different ways. And the way, the, the thing I got out of it last time was this theme of deliberate solitude that Huxley hits on and, uh, in that book. And, and the protagonist in that book um, is the only person in that book that appreciates solitude and seeks it out deliberately. And it is, um, it runs against the grain of his futuristic dystopian society. Um, it is um, almost a criminal act. It's pathological in that book to deliberately want um, solitude. And this just kind of opened my eyes because, my eyes, because you know, as a communication professor, uh, myself and my colleagues, you know, we're really interested in helping people understand how we can be um, communicating more and communicating better. And this is kind of the other side of the coin. So honestly, it was just reading that book that kind of made me start thinking about this and start thinking about the problems of solitude today. It's, it is a, it's a very... Um thought-provoking idea that it could be that perceived that being going for solitude is antisocial it's you know it's um it's selfish it, it could actually become even with our children the child that plays alone the child that is quiet or introverted might be seen as you know an outlier and and not as healthy as those that integrate at every playground activity. Right. And, and the truth is, um, you know, the, the, there's a lot, you know, solitude is, is a complex thing. There are different flavors of it. There's the flavor of it that is deliberate, like Aldous Huxley's talking about. There's the flavor of it that's not deliberate. And a lot of times that is not experienced positively. So I'm not saying solitude is something that we all need more of. Um, you know, it, it certainly children um, don't necessarily deal well with it. Um, older folks tend to deal better with it. Maybe it's because they're more used to it, uh, seniors. 
Um, but, you know, I think that we need to, to think of it not as, you know, necessarily antisocial, not, not necessarily a great thing, but it just kind of depends on the circumstances and individuals have different personality makeups. Um, and, and that plays an important role in how much benefit we get out of solitude or whether we benefit from it. You know, mm. there's a lot of benefits, imagination, creativity, and a lot of people argue that it makes us better social creatures to be able to step out of our social interactions for a period of time and just reflect and sort of center ourselves. And then we're in a better spot to engage with other people and develop empathy and, and all that. So um, We had a, a Buddhist professor. Oh, uh, go ahead. Uh, I, was, I was just wrapping up. Just yeah. that it, it is a complex thing. I'm not saying it's, it's something that's always good. It's not always bad. It just kind of depends. But it's not something that I, I think that we think about, especially, especially that deliberate form of solitude. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, is, I think that deliberate solitude is more important today than ever because the other flavor of it, the kind where you stumble upon solitude on accident, that's really no longer mandatory. We don't have to experience that if we have a cell phone in our pocket, and we always do these days. That's right, and you can always pull it out, and it becomes a distraction to a potential moment of solitude. Oh, absolutely. And I think that um, I think just having it on you and having it on, I think there's a latent cognitive link there that will affect the quality of our solitude if cognitively we're ready to be on call at any moment to have those links activated. I actually think that um, I'd like to do an experiment on this, but I think that there's going to be a difference um, in how we experience solitude if we either, if we have the phone off or not with us, um, as opposed to having it with us and having it on. I think even that is a disruption, even if you're not talking or texting with anybody on the phone. Right. Right. Uh, we had a, uh, a professor from Harvard on who has been teaching at Harvard an ancient Chinese philosophy class. And he's, he's loved, he's beloved. He's, I think his name is Mike Pewitt, a wonderful uh, researcher as well. But he talked about this idea that we have of like the Buddhist monk being this solitude seeking on top of the mountain all by himself, you know, communing with the higher energy. Um, he says it's absolutely inaccurate. But the, the idea of Buddhism isn't that you go away to just only seek solitude by totally being alone all the time, but instead trying to find the spaces of solitude in the spaces be, in life and oh, with people. Yeah. And it's, yeah, and, and it's exactly I, I what you're saying. I think that's a great message, and um, it certainly complements um, the message that, that I've been expressing lately. And you know, and, and basically my message is that we, we need to be more conscious about those moments. Now that, now that they're not mandatory, now that we don't have to experience, um, um, you know, being unplugged from others um, or not engaging with others, um, it's not mandatory anymore. And, and a lot of people feel really uncomfortable um, in those moments. You know, that's a lot of times why people pull out their phone is they don't want to be perceived as alone or they don't want to feel alone or, you know, they want to feel connected. And I think that we need to more consciously recognize that it's healthy to have these moments and that we need to cultivate them and seek them out because they're not just going to accidentally happen to us anymore, really. What are you finding in your research? Um, and what, what is it, do you think, that makes us less, you know, confident in those moments of quiet? So there's, I, I think there's three things. Um, there's, I'm sure, many, many other things. There are three things that I'm interested in right now. I think three explanations for the, the problem of um, of solitude. Um, 
One of them, Sherry Turkle, is a professor at MIT. Um, she came out with a book last summer, last fall, called Reclaiming Conversation. And uh, her explanation is boredom, basically. She says that, um, that we can relieve boredom at any time now with our digital devices, mm. um, that we're, we're more equipped to avoid boredom than we ever have been in the past. And that boredom explains the reason why people constantly will be pulling out their phones to avoid um, moments of quiet just on their own. Hmm. And I agree with her, but <clears throat> I've been writing lately to add two other things beyond boredom. One thing is that, A, I, I've done a lot of research that suggests that, that the mobile communication has become such an ingrained part of who we are that we don't really think of it as much anymore. Now that it's not new, that, now that it's kind of a taken-for-granted assumption, I have a, uh, other colleagues who are, who are writing about that as well. But my point is that, like, uh, texting while driving, some of this can be explained by just automatic behavior. The phone beckons, we automatically reach for it, or we have an internal experience or an emotion, we just reach for it. So I so think that true. we're not thinking, we're not thinking yeah. is one thing. The other thing is expectations. We live at a time where the expectations to be accessible to others are really high, and I don't think we quite see that. I don't think we quite really, I think we're kind of like a fish who doesn't know it lives in water until mm-hmm. it's taking out of the fishbowl. So these expectations, you know, teenagers feel, especially young people, feel like they have to be on call. They have to respond to messages immediately. That's a feeling that they have. And I think that that combined with the sort of less conscious use of, of our technology today also helps explain why we are not, why we just, you know, find, why we avoid those moments of being unplugged. It's so, it, it, we don't see, I, I guess, so you're saying the automatic patterning that we kind of have created, our mm-hmm. expectations socially, and then uh, Turkle's idea of boredom, or I guess, which is seeking stimulation, mm-hmm. um, those keep us from being able to stay in the space. I, I, that's yeah, that's my argument, and I'm not saying that this is like, you know, the formula right, that, right. that well, explains it. But I'm saying these are these are the three key ideas that I see being batted around right now. Yeah, for sure. And uh, let's do this. Let's take a break. Come back with you, Scott. We're speaking with Dr. Scott Campbell about his article that he wrote in theconversation.com, finding solitude in an era of perpetual contact. Interesting insight, I think, for all of us. We'll we'll, uh, explore it further in just a moment. Stick with us, folks, helping you make it through this crazy world uh, with all this technology and still being able to find the peace. By the flash of a neon light, it split the night and touched the sound. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Scott Campbell. Scott is the Pose Endowed Professor of Telecommunications in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Michigan. His research examines social change associated with the update of mobile communication technology. Scott Campbell, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I love this topic. Uh, and I'm, I'm afraid for my children, quite honestly, because... I have, I have six kids, Scott, oh, wow. <laughs> and I know. And the the issue I see are those things you were mentioning earlier. Maybe what you're kind of positing as some of the causes of our inability to get and feel solitude, uh, the automatic patterns. Everybody 
the second they have a free moment, they pull out a phone. And I think you're right. We're not thinking. It's it's pure automatic. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, as a social scientist, I don't know if I would say pure automatic, but, um, you know, we get we get kind of picky about explaining, you know, how much variance in this and that. But it's significantly, significantly a factor, um, especially in the research that I've done on texting while driving. Um, you know, we, we still we still have the, this problem of, of, it's more than just texting now. It's all yeah. kinds of messaging and interacting and distraction with our technology. We know better. We know now. People know how dangerous it is. So why do we still do it? <laughs> why are people still doing this? And, you know, there's been some research that, that looks at, you know, the goals that people have and their intentions and their cognitive, conscious processing. And my graduate student, Joe Bayer, and I, um, sort of flipped it on its head and said, well, what if we looked at the unconscious side? What if we thought about habit or automaticity as one of the explanations why people do this? And we found that it, it did, you know, not entirely explain the whole thing, but significantly it's a piece of the puzzle that explains why people still do this when they know it's so dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that it feeds into this, this question of solitude as well. I've even seen it just going to bed. If, if I don't intentionally put my phone down, I will play on it for an hour and a half. And I'm a guy that needs to get to sleep, to get up early, to do the show. So how do we, as parents, as humans, how do we start to impact the automaticity or the habit-forming side of this? Well, I think I, I think a better understand. well, first of all, okay, um, <laughs> I think what I see now in the media is really the conversation moving towards addiction, mm. and I'm not sure that that's useful. Right. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I, no. especially the popular press, I see an awful lot of people saying it's, it's really addiction. And addiction is a thing. I mean, it's a medical, it comes with an awful sure. lot of baggage and, you know, withdrawal symptoms and tolerance and all this stuff. I think habit is something that people are more willing to swallow. Okay, I right. have a habit, right. you know? I'm an addict, that's a big step you're asking people to take. But if you tell people, you know, look, think of it as a habit. Think of seatbelts. I don't know about you, but I'm old enough to remember when seatbelts oh, were yeah. not, mandato- not well, mandatory. Do you remember we didn't uh, care about people back then? They could just <laughs> flop all over the car, and now we're, like, my, my buckling parents, everyone my parents, would, my parents would be arrested right now, for sure, for all the th- you know, like, laying on the dashboard. Or right, whatever. exactly. But, uh, but if we think about, so that's changed, right? And why did that change? because we educated people on how habits are formed. Um, In the 1980s, I think it was, maybe 70s, I don't know. But there was all of this attention to, you know what, if you do your seatbelt 21 times in a row, you will establish that habit, and it will become automatic. And people kind of got on board with that, right? Right. Um, Of course there are laws. We have laws against texting and driving, too. They don't work. People (laughs) still do it. So I think if we get people to realize the habit, you know, and habits aren't necessarily bad. Right. we don't want to have to think about how to use a stapler every time we pick it up. We need that to be an automatic process. So I'm not saying habits are always bad, but if we think of this as a habit, I think it will help us become more conscious maybe and avoid those times where we you know, automatically grab it. And then, like you said, you get immersed in it and it eats up an hour, hour and a half of your time and you didn't mean for that to happen. Because it is a, it is a, it's a habit um, that will just keep growing on its own. I mean, it's like there's no end to your ability to surf, to Netflix, to um, pretty much any of its functions. There's yeah. no and, real end to it. 
Right, and it's and it's and it is absolutely liberating, and it is absolutely empowering, and it it, it is all of that, and it's habitual, mm-hmm. and it poses problems. Um, like I said earlier, you know, I, I I don't want people to hear this show and think, oh, Scott Campbell hates technology. He's anti tech, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm 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 more of uh, as a social scientist, I just try to explain how and why things happen, you know, and so I try to explain the good things. I uh, do research on political empowerment and mobile communication. Um, which you know is is giving people more voice. Um, is that is, you know this is one of the problems that needs to be explained as well. Maybe that's the answer though, right? And so instead of talking about uh, the the negative side, I guess, what if we talked about the positive, the appreciative side of solitude? Yeah. Is it possible to make solitude more um, enticing and even an expectation? of our lives so that we are constantly also seeking out solitude in almost a habitual way. Yeah, and I, I think so. And it and it doesn't have to mean that we it doesn't have to mean that we, you know, we we drop our technology. Get rid of your phone, right. Yeah, you don't have to cancel your account. You you just you just have to find fifteen minutes here and there where you can feel comfortable with yourself, you know, and just sit there. Um and, and maybe, you know, you come actually to treat that as a habit, you mm-hmm. come to appreciate that, and you seek that out, and you feel refreshed, you know. And and I think people really do actually appreciate these moments. It's just that they need to, I think, get in the right the right mindset and um, and seek them out. Um, and right now, we're just I don't think we're thinking about it. No. Much. Well, in fact, you have a great quote um, that's pretty funny. If a person is alone in the forest when a tree falls but they don't notice it because they're texting, does it still count as solitude? <laughs> it's such a great line. They, they, don't, they don't let us put that kind of stuff in journal articles. So I know they don't. Right. They don't know what they're missing, Scott. That's good. <laughs> that's good writing right there. Is there an RDA? Is there a recommended daily allowance for solitude? Is there a minimum amount we should have and, you know, at least? Well, okay, so this gets at the problem I, meant, I was mentioning earlier. earlier. So the, the last time we tracked how much solitude people got. It was used with, um, with um, diaries and surveys that only looked at the physical aspects of not being mm. around other people, you know, right. not engaging with people you know, um, physically in face-to-face settings. Um, and, and so really, no. Like, we don't even know how much solitude people get because we don't have any measurements for it um, in the digital age. I can tell you that the last time research was done on this that, I, that I've noticed, you know, pretty much before the digital age, um, you know, like senior citizens got something like 50% of their waking hours were, was in solitude. And so, you know, it would not be a good thing to say, oh, everybody needs more solitude. Uh, right. Actually, senior citizens, though, are more comfortable with it, this, this, the research suggests. But they also probably are lonelier. They probably they might be yeah, yeah. Um, and and yeah and like I said with solitude you know loneliness can be one of the ways that we experience solitude hmm. um, you know creativity and imagination and and um, reflection is another you know another set of ways but young people um, in that study adolescents they they got almost none oh, and I they know. didn't want it and they didn't like it and I don't know what the RDA is or if I could come up with a recommendation. So quantity is tough, but I think quality is something I can speak to. Yeah. And I think, and I think that if we turn our technology off, it will boost the quality of our solitude, and we might actually appreciate it more and seek it out more often. And, and then probably use, it seems like it might enhance our ability to use our technology. I mean, it, it seems like solitude creates clarity. 
for yeah. for a lot of people and they can yeah and and kind of pushes out some of the haze that constant chasing of the dream and you know the latest Donald Trump quote um <laughs> not to not to disparage but Right. I, I guess your idea, though, is basically we need to start having conversations about solitude and making it part of our 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 conscious thought process. If only if um, only if we value its benefits. If mm. if we do not value solitude whatsoever, and we do not value the benefits of solitude, um, then maybe not. You know, and and my role really isn't to say what we should or should yeah. not be doing. It's just to try to explain how and why things happen. So I don't want to impose, you know, my values for solitude on everybody else. But the truth is, is that it does offer benefits and that, you know, we can enrich our relationships. Uh, one of Sherry Turkle's points is that it helps develop empathy towards other people. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's something that's worth thinking about. And, and again, I, I don't think that we're really thinking so much about it. So I guess... Um, you know, it's, it's, there's different people who experience it differently and different personality makeups play a role in it. So I don't think that there's any kind of a formula as far as mm-hmm. how much people need. But I do think there are some considerations in terms of how we can increase the, the quality of our solitude and, and benefit from it. And I think that it does not have to come at the cost of being connected in our relationships. In our yeah. Lives. It also seems uh, like almost demographically, I mean, my kids, if if – if I told them, okay, solitude time, which we actually try to do, uh, we just call it quiet time, but no tech time, um, they look at me like, you're trying to kill me, Dad? <laughs> but the, but So it almost is generational, but it might be a powerful discussion to talk even multi-generationally about – I just think of our grandparents that didn't have all this tech pressure and when they were home, they could actually be home or when they were fishing, they could actually be fishing. <laughs> And yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if there's a way to integrate a conversation generationally. I think that might be fascinating. Yeah, and and it is. I think it's important. Yeah. Um, be, because there are differences uh, between the people like myself who have transitioned, you know, as the technology became available, as opposed to people like my son who are growing up with it. And um, it's a different set of. Um, expectations, a different set of norms. You know, young people do things together in groups with their technology that older people would be completely offended by. Mm-hmm. And for young people, in some ways, it enriches their experience. It can, you know. Right. Um, and so I think these conversations are important so that older folks can understand that young people aren't necessarily trying to be rude, but that this is, you know, this is how they live their life, you know. And younger people might benefit by talking with older folks about what life was like before internet and cell phones, um, so that maybe they can gain some appreciation of, you know, what it's like to go fishing and just be fishing. That's right. Just take it in. Well, Scott Campbell, we appreciate you and your great insight. Keep up the work. We'll uh, have you back when you've made your latest and greatest discovery, when you figured out how to define solitude in the current day and age. Thanks for having me, Matt. You bet. Dr. Scott Campbell, good stuff, folks. Solitude. Oh, Just some time to get away and think. How would it be? We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Wrap up the second hour of the show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world.
the matter with you, boy? You too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. The solitude gap. Are you, uh, are you in the gap? Are you not getting enough peaceful solitude? A little place away where you can work your thoughts, maybe meditate, possibly pray, you know, read something that's uplifting, or, or even just sitting there in, you know, nature. I find even when I go on walks, one of my favorite things to do is a walk every day, and yet I still fill my head up with information, with noise, podcasts, interviews, preparing for the next day. We're constantly filling our heads up with stuff. And um, it's probably not helping. And where I worry about this uh, the most is in our ability to actually handle quiet times and quiet spaces. And almost the concept of reverence might be going away where you if you know if you're not one who maybe goes and and experiences a lot of uh either speakers or if you don't have a church setting where you're constantly you know in a place where you need to sit and listen it's probably getting hard for you for your children to learn to just sit still and to respectfully listen i wonder in the end how that's going to impact our abilities to hear one another, you know? I don't want to sound like an old curmudgeon like, oh, in my day, we always respected everyone. But solitude and your ability to sit silently and think is a, it's, I think it's an advancement and a step up in humanity. I think your ability to sit in, in a reverent, quiet space at a funeral, for example, and reverently sit there without your phone is going to have to be something we all can do and enjoy it instead of having to run out in the middle of the funeral to answer your calls. So I just suggest to every one of us, are we increasing our ability to sit in the quiet spaces? One other reason I bring it up is because your ability to sit in quiet solitude, practiced on your own, where you can do that by yourself, it will deeply impact your ability to sit in quiet uh, peacefulness as you listen to someone else. The most intimate moments of life should be or could be possibly intimate, soft, quiet moments of solitude where two people can stay in the space together. I think personally your ability to be intimately connected to other humans is going to be directly correlated to your ability to sit in solitude and be intimately connected with God or with nature or with a higher power. You want better relationships with another person? Then learn to sit quietly, reverently in connection to your higher power in solitude. You cannot attempt to be something with another human being that you are not by yourself. And that's true in solitude. So, little challenge for all of us. Let's pick it up. Practice it. Something we can practice this weekend. Find a quiet time. Go on a walk, but turn off 
the headset. Do something different. Turn off the radio when you're driving. Put your phone away. Million ways to be at peace. That's hour number two, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be back next hour. More information, more solutions to help you live longer and love stronger. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. When we talk about life management or focus or attention management, I guess at some point we all need to identify, too, what we're going to focus our attention on. Um, it, it was an interesting find. I, I was reading a book called Essentialism by uh, Greg McEwen, and one of the things that he taught in the book is uh, the word priority is a word that, uh, you know, we've all heard of priorities, right? We've got to have our priorities straight. Well, the word priority has, uh, by definition, means the singular one thing that's most important. And up until really about 200 years ago or so, priority was always a singular term, meaning you have one priority. But we live in a country, a day and age, um, a world that believes that we have multiple number ones. And we now have to prioritize our priorities. And then we have a belief that not only do we have more than one priority – we have five priorities, and then we need to make plans for our five priorities to make sure that we get our five top priorities done every day. And then that stretches to okay, that's just your work priorities. Now you have your home priorities, and then you have your personal life priorities. And we then assume that now we can go choose what of all of our 15 priorities are the most biggest priority. Come on. Have we not completely messed that up? In the end, I'm convinced um, if I gave you uh, two years to live, let's say you had received a diagnosis, you knew you had two years to live, what would eventually – what would become your number one priority? What's the number one thing you would do if you knew you had two years to live? How would your life change? How would you reorganize? Now, let's, let's forget the two years. Let's just say you've got two months to live. You have two more months in your life of existence on this earth. What would be your priority, really? What's going to be the key? That that report to your boss? You got to get that report done? Well, I mean, it's an important report. I mean, I do have two months. Okay, forget the two months. Let's say you have two weeks to live. You're down to two weeks. Two weeks of your life. What is the number one priority for you? What is the – what matters? Now, let's forget the two weeks. Let's say you had two days to live. So isn't it amazing when we shrink your life, your priorities get so clear. They're so clear. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So you might want to just start identifying very clearly what your number one priority thing is. What's the one thing you would do and spend your last two days doing? How about your last two hours? What would you spend doing your last two hours of your life? 
because whatever you do in your last two days or two hours is probably the priority of your life, period. That's the only priority. Everything else, I'm not saying it doesn't need to be done. You need to mow the lawn, right? You bought a house. But don't pretend like it matters. It doesn't matter to the same level as your priority. And uh, why I bring that up is because if we could actually dial in our attention even higher, but we don't have our attention focused on something that's important, then what good is having more attention? What good is having more focus if it's not focused on something that is absolutely essential, right? You don't want more time, more focus, more energy on something that's not important, do you? I mean, I think all that would create for you is more guilt, more confusion, more misunderstanding, more frustration, more exhaustion. So maybe the first thing we ought to do is identify what direction we should be heading, what's our true north, and then once we know what true north is, let's worry about our efficiencies. Let's get really good at going the direction we're supposed to go. But a lot of us are, are really just trying to improve our efficiencies, and we have no clue where we're going. To be really efficient at something we shouldn't be doing is just plain crazy. We don't need to be awesome at useless stuff. We just Our life, we don't have the time, especially if we only have two months, two weeks, two days, or two hours. You know, when we've got two years, we can mess around a little bit more, we think. But it can all change on a dime, right? And um, so what are you doing to make sure that your most important priority, singular priority, is first? Um, and, you know, how do we take these ideas to those priorities? That's actually – because I had taught time management. I taught communication skills in corporate America. And what I realized in the end is to make corporations more efficient, not half as important as making our most important priorities work for us. So anyway, we are uh, doing what we can to help you focus on what's most important for you. So answer the question. What are What is your top priority, singular? What is it? And whatever it is, I'd have it top of mind, top of list, top of your day. Doesn't mean you don't have to work. You do. But it also doesn't mean that in the middle of the day, you can't still take care of your priority. Your number one thing. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Whether it's the fear of failure or fear of success or fear of not being good enough, fear of not adding up, fear is driving a lot of our lives. And in the end, um, I, I really, I think that it's not, it's not our best self, right? I mean, our highest self is not a fearful you know, fret, fretful person, our highest self, our essence, the greatest part of who we are is, uh, is not this fearful little being. And so I think one of the problems is it's a, like uh, our good doctor was Theo was telling us before that it's really just, it's a construct. It's, it's, it's one thing to be fearful of, you know, an animal that's going to harm you. But that makes sense, kind of on a visceral, physiological level, a biological level, you need to survive. But a lot of us are now misconstruing that chemistry, those feelings, 
and actually inventing problems for ourselves. Uh, I've heard people discuss the fact that we're, we're humans are one of the only animals that experience chronic anxiety and fear. We're the only ones that are chronically stressed. And a lot of us are so stressed about things that aren't even real. It's about possible things. Like, what if I can't get a job? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And we spend so much time focused on our future or so much time not getting over our past. And instead, we just never stay present in the now. And I I honestly think it's a trap. It is a trap that actually is designed to keep us from progressing and being and offering the best thing we can bring to this world. Because if I'm obsessed about what has to happen tonight in my meeting at 5 o'clock or whatever, then um, I am not here right now. And when I'm not here right now, I suffer and you suffer. And no wonder we would stress. You should stress if you're not in the now. I really think your biology is saying, yeah, man, you really ought to focus on the now, dude. Because if you don't, you're going to be eaten by a dinosaur or whatever. You're going to get killed. So we sit, we struggle, we obsess, and then we make up a lot of stories. And we actually use the stories without thinking about them, and we keep using them. Because somebody hurt us in the past, then we have to prevent them, uh, somebody similar to that person. Not really, but I mean, I see this all the time with couples where, because I had a bad history with my um, spouse, then I'm going to try to prevent any history like that going forward. So I will, I will tend to see everybody I date as somebody that could hurt me like my spouse. Imagine how you date somebody if you're always dating out of fear, if you're always dating out of your worst uh, kind of side instead of your healthiest essence. What kind of partner do you find? And what kind of presentation do you give if it's always a presentation out of fear? So how do we overcome this? I think one of the best things that every one of us could focus a little bit more on is let's start staying more present in the now in our lives. Let's actually be where we are at any given point. Let's actually be present. Let's let's have our head in that conversation. Let's have our head in that game. I have seen uh, over and over with my life and my own clients that I am so afraid of things that could happen, but the reality is if they did, the worst case scenario, think of it, the worst case scenario of what could happen to you or your family, if it happened you'd actually be you'd you'd get through it you wouldn't be fine but you'd you'd get through it if you lost somebody that you could never imagine losing and they were were taken in a tragic accident you would get through it if you talk to anybody that's done that and gone through such a tragedy they eventually get through it and they adapt and they cope and they learn and they grow so and so would you now it doesn't – accepting the fact that you could get through it doesn't mean you love someone less and it doesn't mean you can't um, – that, you know, that, that life's not good. But wouldn't it make much more sense to instead of worrying about what could happen, to actually be present with the person you love today, to love them, to care for them, to spend the time, to deepen that love? And so one of the rules might simply be the minute you start to worry about the what ifs or what, what if this happened? Maybe that's a sign that you need to get in the now. 
Now's the time to live your life. Now's the time to experience and grow and develop. Now's the time to exercise your integrity. Now, now, now. Not tomorrow, not next year, not someday. Now, let's do something now. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. One of the things that I have found as I work with clients and we talk about their change is it's easier really to talk about what you don't want to do anymore right, than what you actually do want to become, if that makes sense. It's it's easier for us to pick and nitpick on the negative, what we don't like, than it is to actually identify what we do like. And so one of the things I have found in trying to create change is to take more of what's called an appreciative approach to uh, the change. They call it appreciative inquiry. It's a form of consulting that many um, uh, organizational consultants might do as they go in and look at your organizational ills, the things that need to be fixed. And the big key here is to focus on what works. So when you have talked or thought about something, in fact, right now, pick something in your life you'd like to do better. Pick something you'd want to change, whether it's healthier eating habits, you know, being more patient with your children, what um, what what we do is we all want some movement, some change in our lives. And so one of the first keys to making that change take place is to identify what works. In the past, what has made it so you could be more patient with your children? In the past, what have you noticed has worked to help you be a more patient parent if that's what you're trying to change. Or if you're trying to change your eating healthy, uh, healthier habits, um, what in the past has made it easier for you to eat healthier? So notice what I'm asking you to do is go back to the past to where it has worked. I'm not asking you to go back to the past where it didn't work. Go back where it was good, where you were getting progress. What has worked in the past when you were successfully living that principle? What have people close to you or who uh, – what have they done to live this principle? So part of the key is we're going to go backwards and up in the past to where it worked. And the benefit of going there is that you already have a vast array of information, of data from yourself and others about what works. You don't need to go put together a bunch of new stuff to do yet. Let's first go shore up everything that used to work. Then another thing is you're starting to work on being more patient with your kids. You can start to notice today what worked today. What made it easier for you today to get to be more patient with with your child? So if in the past we start identifying a list of things that used to work, and in the present, what's working today? Again, you don't want to aggregate a huge list of, well, that didn't work, that didn't work. Instead, what did work today? Well, when I am when I come home and I sit in my garage and spend a few minutes before I will run into the house and just find out what my goals are, calm myself down, that helps me go in the house and be a better dad. That worked today. Um, getting some help and support from your spouse, that worked today. Uh, noticing when I was starting to get a little less impatient and putting myself in timeout for a few minutes, that totally worked today. And then the goal would then be to identify what what would you be doing in your life. So if you had a, if I had a magic wand and we could make it, you're perfectly healthy, you're, you're a perfectly patient parent, everything is going great, what would your day look like next week? 
How would your goal, if you were already living it, of being a perfectly patient parent, what would that look like in the future? And so now we can go up to the future and start to say, if it were working, what would I be doing differently? When my kid's pouring his milk all over the floor, how would I handle that differently? Ah, well, I would breathe through it. Uh, we'd calmly, if he had done it disobediently, we'd put him in timeout. We'd have a process for how to handle that. We would have read four other books on how to manage um, some of these behavioral issues that our child might be going through, but really starting to work through what it looks like when it when people do it. You might ask other parents what they do and figure out what works for others. So by focusing on what works, it's different than focusing on and knowing everything that you've tried to work on your kid. Um, And I know it seems like it's easier to find the things that aren't working, but the reality is there's a lot of days you're very patient with your child. It really is. And there's certain days that you're more patient than other days. So there's answers inside of each of those days. In the past, what has worked? In the present, what worked today? And in the future, if it was all working for you, what would it look like? Basic, simple tools to help all of us uh, be a little healthier and, and create better results in our own lives. That's what we're trying to do to just be a little bit better today by focusing on the appreciative side, the stuff that's actually working, instead of just uh, beating up what doesn't work. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us, Heather Ann Johnson. She is uh, she's really one of our great contributors. She comes around, works at BYU here, is an adjunct faculty member here teaching um, tools and basically recreation for family, how to keep your family healthy. She put together an awesome website called familyvolley.com and has a book out, Family Fun Fridays, soon to be releasing Family Fun Saturdays through Thursdays. I'd keep, I think I would keep, um, I would probably keep Sundays, less family, fun, (laughs) more family. Sleep? Focus. (laughs) We had the greatest night last night with our family. We, um, we never use our backyard. Really? Because it's, our house faces the wrong direction, maybe. For the sun? For the sun. Okay. So we, we have basically an oven in our backyard. Sure, sure. So we don't go out there. Well, we've lost three kids' friends. Um, <laughs> to the sun. But last night we went out there. It was cool. It was nice. Our grandchild was there. It was so fun. We were playing. We were we were playing. Have you ever played spike ball? Uh, yeah, kind of like a little trampoline. It's a little trampoline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, with the ball. Yeah. Uh-huh, tons of fun. Yep. And, you know, low key, not a lot of sweating going on. No one died. No one died. No one died. Family time. And then we thought, why don't we do this more often? Sure. That's what families should do, right? That's what you got to do. <clears throat> Be and best you, friends. You've got a whole book full of activities for families. Right. Stuff you can do just like that. Man. Fun, exciting, easy, really easily Simple. Accessible. Simple. And nobody died. And no one dies. You you go to familyvolley.com. You can, you can get her book there. It's so good. It's so good, you guys. Seriously. So Heather's here today, though, not talking families, but talking about <laughs> marriage, which eventually could bring a family. Absolutely. Well, and Best Friends Day. 
Yes. Who better to be best friends with than your spouse? Don't you think? Abs- well, I know. The research Absolutely. shows that, right? <clears throat> it does show the that. The better the friendship, the better the marriage. Right. So we're going to do lots of things today. Some you've heard. We're going to do some research behind it so you understand what you can do. Okay. Hit us, Heather. What what are some of the what are some of the rules, the tools, the what's the what's the key to to keeping the marriage on track? To keep us strong, right? So let's do one that we hear sometimes, maybe not always, but the first one I'm gonna throw out there is we have to put our kids to bed on time. Hallelujah. Now yes. here's what's funny. Oftentimes couples will come to me and they'll say, Oh my gosh, we don't have time for each other. How can we strengthen our marriage when we don't have any time? And when I give them this suggestion, they scoff at me usually and then yeah. look at me like, what in the world does our kids' bedtime have to do with my husband and I yeah. becoming a stronger married couple? Well, if you will put your kids to bed on time, it guarantees you time with your spouse every single day. If it, Now, here's a key too. You got to put them to bed in their bed. Right. Absolutely. Right, right. In their bed, not at 11 at night. We're yeah. talking an early bedtime, which is needed for them, right? So Get them in early. The problem is we think about bedtime and we think, oh, it's so much work and I don't want to put in that work and find another half hour or fine. I don't want the you know hassle and the crying and the whining. But if you will set a standard bedtime that's appropriate for your children, then it guarantees that they're in bed on time and you have probably at least two plus hours every single mm. day with your spouse. So really you're doing the bedtime for the kids to create space and time for you as a couple. That's exactly right. And I do it for them, but I'll tell you, I also selfishly do it for our marriage too. Yeah. And so I know regardless of how busy it's been, regardless of what's on our plate, my husband and I, we usually get about three hours every night just Man, when do you put your kids to bed? Like five? No, they go. Well, we still have some small kids. So by yeah. 730, yeah. everyone's in bed and the bigger kids are always in bed by nine. And so it gives us a good solid oh, couple so hours. Great. So if you want to look at a place where you can immediately start to find time for one another, right? Because we think, well, I want time together, but what do I weed out? I need this still. I have to work. I have to exercise. I've got to this. Start right there. Right. Get your kids to bed on time and make time for your spouse every single night. So and that's our first one. They'll learn to do it. And what's amazing, too, is they would also get in this habit. Right. And so you can put forth the effort just like anything with parenting and with right. families. You can put forth that effort up front and get it taken care of and done. Or you can go all night long. Mm-hmm. Or you can suffer for a really long time. But it seems like if you if you put them to bed, then it, you, you have to then – make it a priority to be together because it would be easy for both of you to go your separate ways. Sure. Facebook, video games, Netflix, whatever. Lots of different things, right? And we'll talk about the best types of activities to choose in a little bit, but it's really important that you somehow carve cool. out space. And so start there. Start right there. Decide Very to make basic. a commitment cool. to do it. Super basic. Yeah. Another thing, and I, I look at these two as really a w- ways that we can kind of a fair-proof our marriage too. If you're doing these things constantly – and and conscientiously, it really does put you in a really safe place where affairs are not going to be part of your relationship. Yeah. And it helps to affair-proof your marriage because you're spending right. this time together and doing these things. So another one is it's time to reset our standard of beauty when it comes to our spouse. If we want to be best friends with them, if we want to have a stronger marriage, we have to make a decision that whatever our spouse looks like is the hottest, <laughs> best-looking thing there Hot can hit. be. It's exactly yeah. right. So my husband is 6'4", and I'm here to tell you that 6'4 is the best it is the for best. a man. It's such it a is. great height. He has brown hair, and brown hair is the best. He <laughs> sneezes really loud. And you know what? Unless you sneeze yeah. loud, you are not hot. You're not you're not you're not even, not even half hot. You're you're not. You yeah. it, it's it's a characteristic for him that makes him 
so attractive and so fantastic to me. If we're not in a mental mindset where we have decided to reset our standard of beauty so that our spouse is the best in all of those ways, we're setting ourselves up for trouble. Aren't we being delusional though like so let's say your husband had a little pooch sure or a big pooch but it's the coolest pooch ever like, and you're like oh, i love a pooch um but what what if what if you don't because i have clients that they just don't right and the problem is and then it, it, all of a sudden it's like they're so they're looking at everyone else's Right. Pooch and, comparing. and comparing. Right. Don't compare pooches is we, what you're saying. It's exactly right. Don't compare anything. In fact, if you're going to compare, you have to do it the other way. Everyone has to be compared to my husband, not my husband to those people. Mm. And so I have to take a step back and say, wait a second. You are not your hair is not nearly you're not this. Your pooch is not nearly as great. You as have his. to find the negative. Right. You have to go the other direction. If comparison yeah. is your, you know, Achilles heel, right. then you've got to compare everyone to your spouse instead of your spouse to everyone else. There's also this place where let's all face it none of us are perfect physically any other way so let me tell you i sure am really glad that he accepts where i falter to and so he finds whatever i've got as his as his most attractive because at some point you were attracted right so absolutely if you're no longer attracted then something's changed right and people always say well i've fallen out of love but you've probably fallen out of a lot of things right like thinking about them positively and looking for ways to to find the love. Right. And so we start to choose. We start to choose to look at all the other things yeah. instead of our spouse. That's so cool. we have to reset that standard. That's our responsibility. It's a it's a decision we make. It's a decision to still find our spouse attractive and beautiful and to stop comparing the wrong direction. Yeah. And we have to do that if we want a strong marriage. We have to it's, reset that. It's funny. Um, but like if our spouse isn't – if they're not taking care of themselves, what do we do? Well, this is different. Now we're talking about a health issue, right? We're not talking about the fact that my neighbor is hotter than you. That's that's a totally different issue. Or that, you know, I'm lusting after someone, you know, who lives down the street or who I see on television or I'm fantasizing. That's a different issue than, you know, sweetheart, I want you to be here till you're 100. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really hard for you to play with the kids and be involved and you don't feel good and it's affecting your heart. Let's take care of it. That's important. It's very different. So our mental mindset when it comes to that, it's really resetting that. And and those are even extra, you know, situations. But really, if we're not careful, we just need to make sure that we're putting our spouse first in all areas, including being Mm -hmm. attracted to them. Right. Is it, it, it seems so easy for us as a partnership to, to maybe look away and compare and look at other people, never even mentioning it to our spouse, but looking, th- that's a sign of something, right? So if if you're shopping right. and yeah. comparing and, and finding yourself seeing your partner less attractive, what what do I do? How do I stop doing it? Well, really, you're going to tell yourself to stop. Which is rate a Notice great it. right a great cognitive behavior therapy where you literally say in your mind, stop, stop, and you start to recognize that you are doing those things. Mm-hmm. Once you recognize it, really yell at yourself to knock it off and take a step back and decide: Is this a rational thought? Well, no, it's this isn't a rational thought, and replace it with a thought that is rational. Yeah. So all of a sudden, we're finding our, ourselves comparing. We're finding ourselves thinking, man. That guy over there, or I wish this, or I, mm-hmm. well, that's that's not rational. I'm not married to that man. Right. He's not my best friend. That's not your life. He, that is not my life, and that is not the situation I'm in, and that is not the type of forward-thinking marriage or affair or 
That's not what I want my future. This is my future. Mm-hmm. And so once we recognize it's, a, it's an irrational thought, replace it with a rational thought and move forward. And make it better. That, that way you're leading your life, right? right. You're not living in la-la land. Right. But be very clear. Stop yourself. Yeah. We, we do it. I mean, it, when we're looking at behavior therapy, it's, it's something we have to do all the time when we find ourselves thinking irrationally. That's an irrational thought. When I start to fantasize or think that direction towards mm-hmm. someone else. Stop it. Stop it. And fill it with something that's rational. I like that. Right? That's very good. What's number three? (laughs) So another one. Let's do uh, research shows us that entropy, we know what entropy is, right? The steady disintegration of anything that's not taken care of, right? Right, right. Like we were talking about, our bodies, they go to pot if we don't take care of them. Our cars, if we're not constantly maintaining, keeping their oil. Our homes, our yard, our yard. Oh, goodness. Just like that, right? right? You don't mow for two weeks and... You know, we now Jungle need a fever. tractor. That's right. exactly right. And so it's the exact same way with our marriages. Entropy will naturally set in and it doesn't take a month. It happens instantly if we're not continuously putting forth energy and effort into our marriage. One of the best ways, in fact, William Doherty, a family researcher, he has shown that one of the best ways to avoid marital entropy, so our marriage is disintegrating, is talking 15 minutes every day. What? Now, here's the thing. That is such a small number. We will all waste. We've already wasted. It's what? 930, 830 in the morning here in Utah. We've wasted 15 minutes somewhere. Oh, yeah. Or we could have found it. So by the end of the day, there is 15 minutes we can put towards our spouse. He says that 15 minutes of talking daily is the surest antidote to marital entropy. Find it. Do whatever you have to do. Mm -hmm. This is not yelling at one another. This is not pointing out what you don't like about one another. This is not worrying about bills. This is really communicating. If you will do that, it saves, starts to save your marriage. On the assessments I use when I'm bringing people and they're filling out the assessment to come talk to me, one of the questions asks how many hours a week they they talk to each other. Uh And it's, I think it's a little delusional because it's like 10 hours, you know, not eight to 10 hours is really healthy. Right. Which I don't know that they're really doing eight to 10 hours. Right. Because <laughs> they're in your office. Yeah. <laughs> but anytime I see uh, like zero to three hours. Right. Trouble. There's major trouble. Always. Every single time. There, there's, there's trouble. N- there's no other way to be a strong married couple if you're not. Right. Talking to one another mm-hmm. and, and touching base and communicating. Right. And so we're not, you know, sitting here and Doherty's not telling us this monument. He didn't say four hours yeah, a day. He, he didn't. didn't even say one. 15 minutes of talking daily. And that's so easy just if you're having dinner. Absolutely. How was your day? Right. And he gives us some great ways to do it. Things that we hear from the research all over where one, carve time out from something else. Mm -hmm. And he also suggests making better use of our time, right? Which is what you're talking about here. We have to put food in our bodies to live. Right. Do it at the same time in the same place. Mm. Find a way to eat together. You know, we get up in the morning, usually at about the same, find a way to sit around with your coffee for 15, whatever it might be. At the same time. Yeah. So really simple, really straightforward. I love there. that. I love that. Stephen Covey used to get on his trail bike, like anytime he and his wife had a serious discussion, uh-huh. they'd hop on a little tiny trail bike, like a Trail 70 or something, and she'd sit on the back and they'd just drive around the That's neighborhood. Awesome. Until they worked until it they out. Until they worked it out. And right? it was, to me, that would be really cool because eye to eye, when you're when it's intense... It's no good. It's, yeah. So if I could be like distracted a little bit by driving, because I can multi, not multitask, but I can communicate better by being stimulated too. So it's, you just got to find your way to make the time. Right. And every time she'd just say, honey, you got to get home. We, we need a trail ride. We need to go for a ride. And all that meant, sometimes it just meant she needed to vent. Uh-huh. And it wasn't even about him. These kids. 
time cool. together, right? Yeah. And so, <clears throat> man, I know you love motorcycles. I love. <laughs> I do. Newfound love, <laughs> which is one of our points, right? To love what your spouse loves yeah. if you want to strengthen your marriage. But if we talk about this trail bike riding, there's actually, a, again, a body of research that suggests that talking and walking for the exact same reasons I you just that. mentioned yeah. is very powerful. If I need to talk to my husband about something, walking is the best place to do it. Yeah. Because like you said, if I say to him, can we talk? He looks at me like, what? Oh, what? <laughs> because well, it becomes like oh. men, men don't usually see talking as a goal. Right. It's just something you do. It's a it, well, you have it's a secondary to, right? thing. And so if the goal is let's go on a walk, then different. talking is palatable. It can. It's exactly right. And yeah. plus, like you said, we're not sitting eye to eye, right? Yeah. When we have to sit on a couch two feet from each other or two inches, and you know, you don't know yeah. where to look. Do I look at you in the eyes? Do it's I look intense. down? If I look away, it, it, nothing. Why did you roll your eyes? <laughs> I, no. I didn't. So true. In fact, I had a couple not too long ago. They had a major discussion over rolling eyes. And just as a funny side note, he said, I don't roll my eyes. It's just a very long blink. It's a long blink. <laughs> it's a long blink. And she said, well, your long blink is killing our marriage. <laughs> you long blink kill me. That's crazy. But when we That's talk crazy. and walk, we also have this very uh, – we have a, a self con- or a subconscious similar goal, right? We're going in the same direction. We're headed the same way. So it tells our brains that whatever it is we're discussing, we can solve yeah, because we'll we're, we're in this, right? We're yeah. going the same way. We don't have to look at one another. It just takes all the stress out. It also has a really handy timer on it, it because does. it's got to stop. And plus, there's not probably going to be yelling and screaming in your neighborhood, right? right. Down your street. So if things do get yeah. tricky or heated, yeah. you're not going to freak out. Walk right in a in public pu- place. It's exactly right. The mall. Go once to the you mall. Trust, once you have really high trust, <laughs> then you can walk in the backwoods. Right. In, in a less public place. <laughs> That's cool. Okay, Hatch. Stick with us. More with Heather Ann Johnson from the website familyvolley.com. Go check out her site. We'll be back talking families and marriage, especially tips for strengthening your marriage. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show in studio with us, Heather Johnson. And uh, Heather is the, an author of Family Fun Fridays, which you can buy at familyvolley.com. If you go to her website, familyvolley.com, uh, you can also find her on Twitter at Pen and Paper Girl. She really likes old fashioned calligraphy, writing. My wife is getting way into that. Is she? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good stuff. She just, she wrote, because we have quotes on my Facebook page and she wrote one, hand wrote a quote, put it up there, and I think it had like 600,000 views. Good for her. I mean, she's control. gotten good. Well, it means her handwriting is the bomb. It is the bomb. She, her handwriting is like a typewriter. Is it? Mm-hmm. That's it really cool. is. That's it's, really cool. And the weird thing is when she's like, whenever she writes. She even makes the sound? Totally weird. That is It's a little freaky. But you love that about her? That's what I love about her. That's what you love about her. Like, oh, they're like, what's that noise? I'm like, that's my wife typing. I mean writing. Yeah, I mean handwriting. Just love it. We just all love it. It's so embarrassing. So, Hadge, you've been married how long? 15 years. 15 years. Whenever they introduce me, they're always like, Matt and his wife have been happily married for 25 years. And in my head, I'm like, it's more like 24 (laughs) and a half. And a half. Yeah, there was some rough six months right there there in the middle. There's there's got to be the rough times to enjoy the beautiful times. Right. It's exactly right. And And to learn. Those make us stronger. 
Right. It's getting through them. If it doesn't kill you, right. it makes you stronger. There's a song about that. There is a song. Sonny and Cher sing it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they do. <laughs> so what um, What are some more tools that we need to pay attention to? You've already taught us put the kids to bed. You know, make sure that your spouse's looks at, you know, their their type of body, hair, that, abilities, gifts, yeah. talents, that you always see that those are your favorite. You, right. you make that intentional. And then you talked about marriage entropy. So we, we don't want to fall into entropy. So instead, we follow Brother Doherty's ba- uh, ideas about 15 minutes of talking a day. Right, right. So a couple other things that are really powerful here. I always teach couples that fatigue does not fuel passion. So true. So very true. And so this leads into really a whole body where, I mean, you could do hundreds of shows on the need for married couples to be intimate. There is just no way around it. It is a powerful and important part of your relationship. But instead of going, you know, so much that way, really, we need to focus on the fact that one of the main reasons why couples aren't is because they are just really tired. You're so tired. And fatigue does not fuel passion. And so it's time to rethink your calendar, rethink your priorities and Help your family, help your relationship so that you're not so tired that that can't be part of it. And some of that is healthy. Like the research shows couples that work out together, couples that exercise, that are active together, have more intimacy in their life, have more physical connection and attraction. Right. One, it provides that energy and that stimulus. And two, they feel better about their bodies. Yeah, you're looking hot. you're, You're more willing to do that. I know when this is an issue with couples, my suggestion for them when it comes to intimacy is that each spouse needs to instigate once a week. I like that. And so that's always where I put them. It's here's your challenge once a week. Usually the men are like, sweet, and the wives are like, what? What? That's <laughs> twice. we get to a place where if you're each instigating, then everyone feels that love. Yeah. And so that's what you're trying to do. Because a lot of times you'll get the complaint, mm. she never it's initiates, exact- she never touches me. Yeah. That's exactly right. So remember, though, that fatigue is not going to help you mm-hmm. in that. So fatigue doesn't fuel passion. Something to remember. Like my schedule, for example, I go to bed at 9. Sure. Early. We, we were out playing in the backyard and at about 9.15, I'm like, well, grandpa's got to go to bed. <laughs> your granddaughter's crazy. still playing. Exactly. Right. Everybody's still playing. But I'm thinking if I don't go to bed, if I don't get my time, then then I lose – then I get exhausted. Absolutely. If I get exhausted, no one's going to be happy. It's exactly right. And it's not just if mama ain't happy, yeah. nobody's happy. If but it's dad's too. It is. It's true. Yeah. Other things we can do here that are really important, it's time to start making our routines rituals. Mm -hmm. Now, a ritual is a meaningful pattern of interaction. So this is something that has meaning or significance that you do together. It's repeated, meaning you do it more than once. And there's some sort of uh, coordination to it, meaning there's enough thought to put it together. What we tend to do is we tend to think that there's not enough time or ways for us to connect in rituals each day with our spouse. And that's not true. If you want to have a strong marriage, there needs to be rituals, these meaningful interactions each and every day more than once. Right. So the suggestion always for couples as I work with them is to first take a step back and instead of thinking, well, do we need to take up a new hobby? How are we going to add more to our lives? They're too busy. I want you to simply take things that you already do and add meaning to them so that instead of being a routine, they become a ritual, which is a meaningful interaction. Yeah. Uh, a very silly example of this, when my husband and I first got married, one night I was in graduate school and I went to bed really late and I walked into the bathroom and he had put toothpaste on my toothbrush for me. Wow. Now, at the time we'd been married like three weeks, it's that, oh, I, he's – I mean it just – That is so cute. It was so cool. 
But he did it the next night and every night as I, you know, worked through my thesis and was uh, every night I'd walk in and toothpaste was on my toothbrush. Now, brushing my teeth is not meaningful to me. I do it because I don't like bad breath and I don't like the dentist. That yeah. Really. Two, two things you're trying to avoid. It's exactly right. But as soon as we added that meaning, he did that. All of a sudden it became so significant and our routine turned into a ritual. So 15 years later, the ritual still stands that whichever one of us gets to the bathroom first always puts toothpaste on the other person's toothbrush. Oh, It is a cute. very small way where we connect every single day. I know that I've taken a minute to think about him or he's taken a minute to think about me. Right. So add meaning to what you're already doing, right? Does your husband or your wife, you know, eat the same cereal every morning? Get it out and put it on the counter. Make some sort of meaningful connection that you do each day. Send the text every day at lunch, whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very simple simple things, but take what you're already doing that's routine and turn it into a ritual by adding meaning. Because it's it's happening. I mean, if you routinely, everyone, like a lot of couples have those weird ways of holding hands in a right. weird way or Saying phrases. hello or goodbye, right. all, all those things. That's cool. Right? That's good. So it's it's a really powerful way. And your goal is really at least three a day, three of those connections three, each yep, day. Three, yeah. If you can get to five or seven or 20, I mean, whatever you can do. Yeah. But once you drop below three, you're really putting yourself in a position where it's not repeated enough that it matters on a right. daily basis. So that's, that's cool. really important. A couple other ones we'll throw out there. I'm a huge advocate of closing the door on any old flames you might have. Yeah, shut them. Shut them down. If you want your marriage to be successful, it is time and to be stronger, it's time to get rid of that. Oftentimes when something's tough at home, we jump on social media and, you know, before we know it, we've made those connections again. If there's no way around it or if it's a relationship you want to keep, the suggestion then is to keep those old flame relationships together instead yeah. of as an, as an individual. As a couple. Sometimes you're in places where you can't avoid the fact that you still live in the same city as somebody you dated 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so if those are interactions or you know, you're know you on social – whatever it is that you're going to have, if you can't close the door completely, then make sure that any open doors are together instead of by yourself. And I'm always like, don't connect, like, don't go connect with them on Facebook because one of the problems with the old fling is that the old chemistry right. is still connected, right? right? So having the thoughts and then the connection, the, the chemistry is a lot faster to come back. Absolutely. Especially if all of a sudden something at home isn't so fantastic yeah. or you disagreed over motorcycles mm -hmm. or whatever it might. Right. And the next thing you know, that's where you're seeking out that comfort. Don't confide so close in them. the old yeah. Yeah. Close, close those them. doors. Shut them. Yeah. yeah. And lastly, it, we ta we began today talking a little bit about doing things together. One of the best ways to strengthen our marriages is to do things together. Now, that doesn't mean movies and TV. There's a huge body of research that is so powerful that supports one outside activities with our spouse bring more more marital satisfaction than things we do inside. It lets us leave distractions behind. And on top of that, it suggests that we need to do joint activities together instead of individual or parallel. Hmm. Individual are things we do without our spouse. Parallel represents a false front. We're with our spouse, but there's no communication or interaction. This is TV. This is movies. This is those sedentary sit in front of a box, stare at the same screen. Yeah. If we want our marriages to be successful, every time across the board, research shows the same thing. Joint activities where there's communication and cooperation, that is what will make us a stronger couple. Boom. So Huge. instead of you know going to our go-to, Netflix, because it's easy, we're going to have to put forth a little more effort. But even a walk will bring more strength to our marriage than sitting in front of a movie and watching right. it. So go for those joint activities. The joint activities at the highest level. Joint, and, and sometimes that means you have to – 
quit being a certain type of person. Right. Like sometimes I, I've had people say, well, I don't – I'm not a movie person or I'm not a TV person. Right. And the other's like, well, I'm not a walker. Right. Well, then find Somebody a third to, party, exactly. right? You've got to do something different. Right. And we oftentimes feel like we're choosing. Like, well, I'm choosing his or he never chooses yeah. mine. So don't choose anybody's. Choose something Create totally something brand, brand new. new that's just the two of you. And be willing. Be open, right? I if we it. want our marriages to be strong, we have to be willing to take those risks right. for the reward. That's right. Heather Ann Johnson's her name. Go check out her website, uh, familyvolley.com. Family volley, like a tennis volley. A familyvolley.com. You can also go look at her book, Family Fun Fridays. Good stuff. Heather, thanks. Appreciate you. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's It's got to be a really hard job, right? To be a cop, everywhere you go, something could happen. You know, it's bad every morning just getting ready for work. You've got to strap on a bulletproof, ja- a bulletproof vest. I mean, just getting dressed every morning. Think about it. What do you have to do to get dressed? Okay, I got to do my hair. Got to shower, shave, shine. Oh, jacket. Right. Put on my... My uniform, put on my belt with gun on one side, taser on another side, mace on another side, baton, handcuffs. I mean, I'm assuming when you're putting all of that on every day, it gets a little a little tedious. Uh, check out this call. A Boston uh, man is now facing felony charges after police found an explosive device in his home while investigating his report of a break-in and car theft. So they call the police. Hey, somebody broke into my house. And uh, and took my car. The cops show up. They're in the house. They look over. Bada boom, bada bing. There's a bomb, an explosive, you know, device, they're calling it, sitting right there. I am the smart. S-M-R-T. I mean, S-M-A-R-T. <laughs> Not so smart. Not so smart, buddy. Kevin Butler, 26, Called them saying someone's broken into his home. The officers show up and uh, someone had stolen his car and a safe full of cash. But there is an explosive device there. I mean, that could have gone so wrong. So you're a cop. You show up. You're taking the guy's report. You look on the nightstand or the whatever, the table there. And there's a bomb. So they had to call the bomb squad in. (sighs) Just another day. So as you think about your police out there, 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 there is a degree of masculinity in play. <laughs> you know, these are the guys walking into a scenario when a husband and a wife are fighting. They're just going to walk in there. They're the guys that when there was a call with a man with a gun on a campus, they're the ones that drive to the scene and pull up and jump out as fast as they can and run toward the scene. Everyone else is running away and they run toward so we probably need a degree of masculinity to even make that attractive. And then we get frustrated with the cops when they become overly masculine, right? And they and they can't pull it back. So training is probably in order. More skills, more tools. It couldn't hurt. And also a deeper respect for what uh, it's like to be a minority in this country. We, we can, as humans, go step in their shoes and try to understand what it's like. 
Let's change the world, folks. We're changing the dialogue. That's how we'll do it. We'll be right back. 